I love wine regions that are undeniably authentic and that always over-deliver. For me, that sums up Paso Robles. In fact, the first time I got on a plane in over a year and a half was to visit Paso back in April. Paso Robles sits in the heart of California's Central Coast. It's a big wine region that has many diverse microclimates, and it allows for a stunning array of grapes to thrive. In short, Paso Robles has range. They aren't known for just one or two varietals or wines. They make interesting blends from Cabernet Sauvignon and other Bordeaux varietals, Syrah and Rhone-style wines, Zinfandel, Tempranillo, and they even make beautiful white wines. Side note for you guys, my number one wine of 2020 was a Zinfandel Tempranillo blend from Paso Robles. Just saying. I also love that it's made up of over 200 family-owned wineries. We're talking salt-of-the-earth people who put their heart and soul into their wines. Paso Robles is special, but now the word's getting out. You need to check it out and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. You can learn more at PasoWine.com. That's P-A-S-O Wine.com. Are you looking for extraordinary new wines that have been tasted and approved by professionals with over 40 years combined experience? Then you have to check out 56DegreeWine.com. Joe Bimbry and his grand crew at the shop do all the heavy lifting for you by vetting every wine on their shelves. They scour the wine world, traveling often to France, Italy, Spain, California, all over the place, seeking out the absolute best values. And they keep that philosophy alive in selecting their artisan-made spirits and handcrafted microbrews. Whether you're looking for a baller, Barolo, and Burgundies for the cellar, or everyday drinking wines, they've got you covered. Even my favorite from Domain Bizcot is a staple there, so you know they have good taste. Follow them on Instagram, at 56wine, and go to their website, which is www.5656degreewine.com to browse the thoroughly curated selections. Use the code MJ when you check out to save 15% off your first order. That's 56degreewine.com. They try a lot of crappy wine, so you don't have to. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ, and welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is best known as Duke University's all-time leading scorer, an NBA lottery pick, and one of the most lethal three-point shooters in NBA history, a wine collector, J.J. Reddick. He was born in Cookville, Tennessee, and came from a family that shared an interest in sports. He went on to play basketball at Duke University, where he still holds several records, including all-time leading scorer, and he is the second leading scorer in ACC history. Uh, JJ's professional basketball career began in 2006 when he was a lottery pick. Uh, the Orlando Magic selected him with 11th pick overall, and over the course of his 15-year NBA career, he played with the Milwaukee Bucks, the Los Angeles Clippers, the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Orleans Pelicans, and finally the Dallas Mavericks. He is the creator and host of the podcast, The Old Man and the Three, 
And in 2020, he founded the podcasting company 342 Productions. He is an enthusiastic wine collector. JJ has assembled a seller of diverse venue selections, which he recently discussed in All Stars Uncorked, a digital event sponsored by Acker Wines. JJ is a devout Christian, husband, father, an ESPN analyst, and also a household name. Welcome, JJ. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think you've you've cut you covered it all. Very <laughs> impressive, very impressive. It, it's the team, man. You know, it's it's, it's the team. Um, tell us about the wine we're drinking this afternoon. Yeah, so I, look, I I had to bring some red Burgundy. Um, that is absolutely my go-to wine. And full disclosure, and I told you this before we started. I my cellar is not in New York City, and uh, I hadn't been back there since Thanksgiving. So I just had some stuff in my apartment. I actually had this delivered this week. So this is a, a, a Joseph Truhen, uh Von Romanet mm. Premier Cru. And the interesting interesting thing about this wine is uh, it's actually a blend of three different sites. Oh, wow. They only make about one one to two barrels a year of this. Um, it's Cham, uh, Le Petit Mont, and one of my favorite sites, Malconsor. Malconsor abuts Latash. Okay. And if you get a pure, you know, single site Malconsor like from Dujac, it's a tenth of the cost of Latash. Right, right. But it drinks just as well. This is a nice little. I have not had this wine. This is the first thing. It's a young wine. It's 2019. We've all opened it. Yep. We've all taken a couple sips. Yep. It's fantastic. Yeah. No. And 2019 is like is going to be a killer uh, vintage for Burgundy. It's just been declared a killer vintage. Yeah. And like shit, you know more about Burgundy than I do, and I worked in the wine business. Um, <laughs> But, um, but yeah, I, I always tell people all the time, like, once you know, and this is, this is true wherever in the world you go, like, like once you know vineyards and, and terroir, like, you know, like you can find shit like for a 10th of the price, you know, like, yeah. um, cause it's right at a butts. And, um, so Saint, Saint Aban in, uh, in, in, uh, next to Montreche is like, it's just over the hill. It's on the other side of the hill. That's, and you can get PY, well, you used to be able to get PYCM Saint Aban for like 55 bucks. Right. Now it's like 110, but it's one of the greatest values in, in white burgundy. Well, that remember we were talking about a, a certain next president of the United States. <laughs> yes. that, that actually was the bottle. It was okay. the PYCM yes. Saint Aban. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That, that, uh, Love that, that. that was one of, so, you know, he, a practical man. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the funds now. I know. He totally has the He's funds, got the man. funds. He um, could he could afford some Chevy at this point. Well, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, um, so you were born in Tennessee, and then um, we start at the beginning. And then how old were you when you moved to uh, Roanoke? It was Roanoke, right? Yeah. We, 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 it was a uh, circuitous route to okay. get to Roanoke. <laughs> so uh, so when, I, when I was first born, uh, we lived – about 40 minutes or so north of a town called Cookville, Tennessee, which is basically right in the middle off Interstate 40 between Nashville and Knoxville. And originally, my dad, after college, had um, bought some land with some buddies, and he invited my mom down. They went to college together. My dad was a few years older, but he invited my mom down. She was living in New York City at the time, working at an art gallery in Soho. For the weekend. And she went down for the weekend. She never came back. They start having kids. Uh, my older <laughs> sisters are twins. Uh, I was the I was next. And uh, on, I've been back as an adult to the property. <laughs> and there were like four or five houses, four different families on this one piece of land. 
Um, it was basically a commune. I was saying you lived it, was a, it, was a, it was a commune without the, the negative connotations of commune. And uh, in the very back of the property, as you got sort of – as the holler, holler sort of like elevated into the back of the hill, um, there was a hunting lodge. And that's where my mother uh, breastfed me. That's where my mother raised me for the first nine months of my life. And then we moved into town. My dad uh, realized that he, he couldn't support three kids at this time being a stoneware potter. So he got a real job <laughs> and became a, uh, a counselor uh, for, for adolescents who were dealing with substance abuse. And so we moved to Charlottesville. We lived there for four years. He got a better job opportunity in the Poconos. We were only there about 10 months, and my parents were dying to get back to Virginia. Right. So they found a place in, in Roanoke. We moved to Roanoke when I was seven. There's a lot there. First of There's all, a lot to unpack. You're, 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 <laughs> There's a your lot. Your dad to must unpack. have been a hell of a potter to have your mom move from New York City, working in our to a commune in Tennessee. My my dad at the time was legitimately one of the best potters in America. Um, and if you so his his name's Ken Reddick, but uh, his pottery name was Zeke Reddick. That was his nickname that the artists had given him. And if you go on eBay, you can still find. Zeke Reddick pottery from the 1970s. It's pretty wild. That's wild. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> so how, is it three of you total, or is there, do you have any younger siblings? Well, then, so my brother was born in in, uh, in Charlottesville when we moved to Charlottesville, okay. and then while we were in uh, Pennsylvania in the Poconos, my little sister was born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So I'm I sense I'm the second born right. in theory right. uh, in the birth order, but I'm really the middle of <laughs> yeah, five. Yeah, the middle child. So I have some middle child characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I read somewhere um, that um, I think you were like eight, seven or eight when your dad put up a hoop yeah. in your backyard. And uh, what was the what was his reason for that? Just to get the kids out the house, uh, burn off some energy, or you had five kids? He's like, I can have a basketball team. <laughs> so, so pops pops played uh, in college at Ohio Wesleyan. It's a D three school. He was a good high school player. Okay, um, but th th they weren't they weren't necessarily pushing sports or athletics onto us. We were actually my sisters and I were my older sisters and I were were homeschooled. They homeschooled till ninth grade. I homeschooled through fifth grade. Mm. Um, and so we were outside all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we were we were building villages out in the woods. We had stone forts everywhere. Um, everything we did was outside. And I basically did whatever my sisters did. So there was a time where we um, owned this crazy fucking horse named Shekinah. And uh, my sisters rode. They competed. And, and I learned how to ride a horse. And then they started playing softball. And so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try – T-ball and baseball, I'll do that. And then by the time they were 13, they were six feet tall. Mm. And so they just picked up basketball at 13. I was eight, and dad put up a hoop in the backyard in Roanoke. And that's essentially where, on that court, is where I learned how to play basketball. And I, I tell this all the time, but this is the worst basketball court you could ever <laughs> imagine. It was completely uneven. It was a third grass, a third dirt, a third gravel. There was a giant tree tree branch in, in the left corner, so you had to really put some arc on it, and and the, and the left side was actually lower than the right side. So when you're shooting from the left corner, it's like shooting on ten and a half feet, not ten feet. Uh, and then we had a well, and the well, the thing that abutted out of the ground, was was in the right corner. So there were obstacles. There were obstacles, but I, I there was something uh, autonomous. Uh, 
that I found in basketball. And there was something about the routine of going outside and shooting a basketball, watching that ball go through the net, going to grab your ball, dribbling back out, shooting it. I'd do that over and over again. It, it would get dark. I would take my dad's lawnmower out to center court, you know, top of the key or whatever. I'd grab an extension cord and I'd clamp a light on and shine it at the backboard. If it snowed, I'd put gloves on and it used to ice up in the mountains. So, you know, the, the net would be ice. So I'd be <laughs> shooting on ice and I have to go get another ball and knock the ball out every time <laughs> I made it. But I was just, I, it, 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 it's a little bit of obsession. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of addiction. Um, but, but I, I found this, this thirst to just play basketball mm -hmm. all the time. Um, do you think like, you know, playing on those, like, those 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 kind of like fucked up courts like where the you know, like like it, it actually makes you a better ball player because like yeah. like when like on the court like it's not a clear path to the basket right so like you you can find weird bounces you you know like oh that's gonna bounce like it did off the old route right? yes, <laughs> or, yes. or this is a, I gotta pick up the dribble like you know because like that would happen on the gravel but yeah. it might be someone's you know so I, I I like I've seen kids like also like in the inner city they have sometimes some fucked up warp courts oh yeah no 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 nets. net no right? net so you, you have wind to make coming it, off the yeah, river yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. it forces you to make adjustments yeah. I think I, it's not a, it's to I, in thinking about it after the fact what I think it taught me in a way was visualization mm. because it taught me a level of imagination that I had to use. This was not, uh, I, there was no three point arc, you know, there was no foul line. It was all just my own doing. It was my, all my own creating. Mm. Um, and I would, I would rehearse games. You know, I, I, I played in the ACC championship my freshman year at Duke and we beat NC state. Um, I was having an okay tournament. I wasn't playing that well. And then the last 10 minutes, we were down 15 points. The last 10 minutes, I had 23 in the last 10 minutes. We came back and won. And I remember saying after the game, I, I, I've actually played this game before. Played it in I've played this in my head, in my backyard, dozens and dozens of times. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's funny. When you said that, it reminds me of um, uh, Kevin did a uh, special about the DMV uh, yep. area. And uh I can't remember his name right now, but the kid from Villanova when they won a championship, they was like, soon as soon as soon as they got the ball to me, everybody from that area knew they were gonna win. <laughs> yeah. Like we we do, we used to do that shot fifty times a day, yeah. every day in their head. Yeah. You know, I think it was Chris Chris Jenkins made the three. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um yeah. so like let's uh we're gonna get to Duke, but also like so you take up basketball at eight and then um like kind of what was your 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 journey, like you played at McDonald's All American, like how like how did your how did your game just like, yeah. Besides, your, obviously, it, your hard work ethic. It, it wasn't it wasn't linear. It wasn't linear <laughs> from the hoop going up at eight to becoming McDonald's All American and a Duke signee. I can tell you that. Um, so a, a couple things happened. Uh, I would say three things that were 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 big. So uh, I loved baseball as well. Okay, I was a great pitcher. Um, I, ego side, I was a great pitcher. I was dominant. I was dominant. I always like to, to tell people this story, but look, I lost one game as a pitcher in, in in four seasons of pitching, little league, and then and then yeah. fall ball on the big field. I lost one game as a pitcher. There's six innings in a little league game, which means there's 18 outs. Okay, 
In the game that I lost, I had 17 strikeouts. The 18th out was a grounder back to me that I went and tagged first base myself because I couldn't trust my first baseman. <laughs> we had so many errors that we lost. We lost like six to three, you know? So I, I, was, I loved baseball. And after my sixth grade uh, year, we played, that was my first year playing in the national tournament for the Roanoke Jaguars. So okay. we go to Salt Lake City. We're there 10 days. We play in the tournament. And... I'm exhausted. I get back Sunday uh, from Salt Lake, and my dad says to me that afternoon, I'm taking a nap. He wakes me up. He's like, oh, your Little League All-Star team is playing in the state tournament on the other side of the state. I had forgotten about this. <laughs> so I had a family friend drive me basically through the middle of the night. I get to Portsmouth at like 3 a.m. I pitch the next day. I uh, We went into extra innings. So I, I struck out like 13 batters in eight innings. We win the game. We ended up getting to, I think, the quarterfinals we lost. I get back from the trip, and my dad's just kind of like, look, we got five kids. We don't really have time to be <laughs> going all around the country. You're good at both, but you, you really do need to mm -hmm. choose. And I think it was partially because my sisters now at this time were playing high-level AAU basketball. They were getting recruited Division One, and I, and I was five foot six. I hadn't had a growth spurt yet. So, uh, But I was like – my dad played basketball. My sisters played basketball. I'll, I'll, I'll pick basketball. So I picked basketball. That was that was one thing. And then I hit a growth spurt. But in that year I hit the growth spurt, I, I broke my wrist three times. Shit. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Uh, it was all playing basketball. But when I, when I broke my left wrist, I, I learned how to shoot one-handed. Mm. And I would just practice one-handed shots underneath the hoop. And then I'd get out to five feet, seven feet, free throw line. And then out eventually out shooting one-handed three-pointers. Um, and that's – Really, those six months is like when I learned how mm. to become a good shooter. Mm. Yeah, and then by the time I got to high school, I was you know, I was six four, and I could shoot the shit out of the ball. Yeah, and I had learned how to dribble on a uneven court, so yep. I could handle it. I wasn't <laughs> just a standstill shooter. And uh, and I I played for this guy uh, Boo Williams in in Hampton. I used to drive four and a half hours uh, every weekend to tournaments and practices across the state of Virginia, but it was the best AAU program on the East Coast at that time. Yeah, because that that's uh. That's uh, Hampton, that Hampton, uh, Newport News area. Yeah. That's where Vic came. Somebody great out Vic. Allen Iverson. Iverson. Alonzo Morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a serious, it's one of those hot zones. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, so, <laughs> I got. what was that like? <laughs> white, white boy driving all the way across the state to go ball. And they, yeah. like, it, you know what? I, I, I didn't think about it. And it, truthfully, when I started playing AAU uh, 11 and under Roanoke Jaguars, <laughs> and Prior to that, I'd, I'd played a couple of years of AAU on the Cave Spring, the Cave Spring team. Yeah. Right? You know, whatever. It's like Southwest Roanoke County. It's the sticks, man. Right, right. And um, it was all white. We <laughs> were all white. Uh, but then when I, I started playing with the Roanoke Jaguars, it was all of Roanoke. Yep. And, and it just became about basketball. There's right. just like this universal love language mm -hmm. of basketball. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. uh, who you are, what you are, who you like, right. what your skin color is, uh, how you talk. It's just like... You love the game. Can you hoop? Yep. Do you get along with us? All right, you're good. Mm -hmm. And so by, by the time I went to Boo Williams, it, it wasn't even like yeah. a thought in my head. Yeah. Like I'm the only white. I was. I think we had yeah. one other white guy. But they knew you could ball. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they was probably like, he could ball. Right? But look, I, I specifically, it's one of the most vivid memories of my life is the first tournament I went to. I was playing with the 17s and I just turned 15. I just finished my ninth grade year of high school. Didn't know any of these guys. Didn't even know Boo. I'd never met Boo. Mm -hmm. And... I had to meet them for the Peach Jam. It was the first tournament in July post-Nike camp. And I flew into Atlanta with two giant duffel bags. I was going to be on the road with these guys for a month straight. And I'm, 
I'm like going through the Atlanta airport to meet them at their gate, and I have no fucking idea what to expect. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going. I didn't even know if I was good enough to play yeah. 17s, at, you know, at the time. Um, and those guys just welcomed me, man. It was it was beautiful. And and still to this day, I talked to a couple of those guys. We, we still have a friendship. Uh, Jason Clark, Elton Brown, who both played at UVA. Um, those were those were great years playing for Bill. Nice, nice. So, <clears throat> um, so. What's it like playing for Coach K, Duke basketball, man? Like that's like that's 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 you know that's like the Yankees of uh, college, yeah. you know, basketball, college sports. Almost, There's, I don't know of a more dominant team in college sports. It's first of all, he's he's an icon yeah. and a legend, and whatever good thing has been said about him uh, as a human, as a coach, as a leader. It's all true. The guy's excellent. There's a there's a personal standard that he has. I was around him four years, and I've become friends with him as an adult. He just doesn't have bad days, mm. and and he has set that standard at Duke. And so the expectation is like, motherfucker, you better have some great days too, <laughs> you know. And at the time, in looking back, it was, but at the time, it just felt like a pressure cooker. And I was so unprepared. Even though I had played high-level AAU and been in the McDonald's game, I was not prepared to be in that fishbowl. Um, you know, my my ego structure, my sense of uh, self-worth and self-confidence and self-awareness, it's just not good. So I really – I struggled my first two years, not on the court necessarily. I, I played good. I mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, I was a leading scorer on our Final Four team in 2004. But I, I really struggled, and I had to go through uh, some deep soul-searching at the end of my sophomore year. And and that was a, a huge transitional point in my life. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think when we were doing research for this show, um, you know, I know enough about sports. I know enough about enough things. But, like, I didn't realize, like, you at one point you were the all-time leading scorer in the ACC and you're the all-time leading scorer in Duke history. I don't, I don't, I don't know if people really – Unless you're like a real basketball fan, like yeah. understand how good a fucking shooter you are, what that means. I mean, yeah. like, so I'm trying. See, I'm I'm older than you, <laughs> but and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, North Carolina is in, it was in the ACC in the '80s, right? And they used to, when they were playing against Georgetown, Georgetown was in the Big East, Georgetown, Syracuse versus. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking. You're the all-time leading scorer in a conference that put out James Worthy. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan. Yeah. I mean, um, oh, Christian, Christian Leitner, Leitner. Grant Hill. Grant Hill. Yeah. Um, Len Bias. Len Bias. Yeah. Yeah. I just, just. It was a big deal. That's a big deal, man. <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, <clears throat> it's weird, though, because when I got to Duke, I, I wanted, I obviously wanted to win national championships. We had the number one recruiting class in the country that year. Um, there was an exodus of players, Jay Williams, uh, Mike Dunleavy, Carlos Boozer, that all left early and would have been seniors my freshman year. Um, but the expectation was like, we're Duke, we're going to win national championships. Mm -hmm. But then the other side of that was, I really want to get my jersey retired. <laughs> and I really want to be the all-time leading scorer. Mm -hmm. And that was my mindset the second I, I set foot on campus. So the Duke record actually meant way more to me than the ACC record. Mm -hmm. I had 25, 56 penciled in a notebook somewhere, you know, when I'm goal setting. Mm -hmm. I knew Johnny Dawkins' number. Mm -hmm. I still couldn't tell you what 
Dickie Hemrick's number was, the Wake Forest guy who had the record. I have no idea. Uh, I don't even know. I, I, I know my number just because, you know, I had 27, 2769 because my rookie year I had to sign it so many fucking times on memorabilia. That's the only reason I remember that number. But, uh, but like that number, 2556, I knew Johnny Dawkins' record. Right. And, and, I, and I was like, I, I wanted that number. And it's, it was so great. The, the shot I hit was literally in front of the bench against Miami in the second half. And JD's like three feet away. And he's the first person to stand up when it goes in. Yeah. Yeah, how cool is that? Like, I think people, like, when you have a record like that, it's like, it's kind of magical when a record falls. You know, you're like, okay. They're meant to be broken. They're meant to be broken. I don't know that anybody's gonna, anybody at Duke will break my record, though. Yeah. It's a different era. Yeah, because kids are one and done now. There's so many one and done. The best players go one yeah. and done. And, and look, truthfully, if I, if I had gone to Duke in this era, I would not have the mindset, I'm going to stay four years. Right. I would have the mindset, I'm going to, go a year or two i'm gonna try to win a national championship and then i'm gonna get fucking paid right (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you know and it's it's what it's funny like because i i grew up in new jersey and i live there now again um like uh it's like new jersey is like uh duke is like a juco for jersey top jersey players yeah (laughs) Like Rutgers could win the national championship, dude. We could just keep dudes in state. They all go down to Duke, play a year, and then they're gone, man. It has been a it has been a nice a nice source of players for us. I'm just obviously Jay Will, Bobby Hurley, yeah. Kyrie. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's been some more guys recently, but uh, yeah. He, he look, coach is he's a, he's established such a brand there. Yeah, uh, the continuity, uh, the winning, all that stuff, and he's able to. He's able to get kids from all over the country to buy into coming to this place. And and look, we talk about Duke basketball all the time in 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 my world. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's college basketball, NBA, like Duke basketball is such an right. entity. And the thing that gets overlooked and not talked about enough is, and I learned this after the fact, is like you get an unbelievable education, and the Duke network is an incredible resource. Yeah. And it has been for me in my adult life. Sure. It's been an incredible resource. Yep. Whether it's donors, grads, um, managers on the team from the '90s, 2000, like I've I've built amazing relationships within that network from people that I had no connection to uh, from '02 to '06. Yeah, yeah, no, and, that, and that's another thing. I used to work with high school kids uh, and and about going to college, and you know everybody plays ball thinks they're D one, and and, and yeah. everybody thinks they're D one. Everybody thinks they're going to the NBA now. Everybody, <laughs> everybody thinks they're going. To the but NBA like now. I used to, t- I'm like I'm like, listen, man. <clears throat> Yeah, maybe. Okay, so you go to UConn. You go, you're going to go UConn and ride the bench, right? I'm, I'm, I'm telling it. Go to Wesleyan. It's D3. But when you get out of Wesleyan, your network of people it's valuable, I mean, it's valuable for a job. Valuable. Way more than like, oh, I rode the bench at UConn and now what are yeah. you doing? Now you, you know. Um, and But places like Duke and North Carolina and the Georgetown, you're getting to play that top level and you're getting the network, right? Yeah. So um, talk about um, – I was, I was going to ask you. So um, you did do your four years there. Um, cause you saw the value in education. Um, do you also think that helps you as a, as a player going to the NBA having, did it allow you to mature your game or what, what was your, what was your take on, um, staying all four years? Um, I, it certainly helped develop me as a player. Um, and I had a chance after my junior year to go to the NBA. I would have probably been drafted somewhere between 15 and 20. Um, I'd, was first team All American and, and won one of the National Player of the Year awards that year. Um, 
but I hadn't won a championship. And so that's why I, mm-hmm. I, that's the real reason I went back. I mean, you have to understand all my friends that were juniors, Sean May, Rashad McCants, Raymond Felton, like all the UNC guys, but I, we were played against each other since we were 14 yep. or 15 years old. <laughs> so like all those guys are leaving. And I remember being with my dad in LA and at the Wooden Award and Sean was meeting with a, an agent. I had lunch with them. And I said to my dad, like, should I be doing this? Should I be looking into going in the NBA? And I had that thought for like three days, but ultimately I went back. I, I think what it did was it, it, it actually helped me mature as a person. Mm-hmm. That was the value because, uh, when I left there, I had a pretty clear sense of who I was as a player and obviously a clear sense of who I was as a player or a person. And and that, I think, is what allowed me to withstand some of those early trials in my career mm-hmm. of, of not playing, of being, you know, being benched. My rookie year, we're three months into the season. I think I've dressed out for like five games. I'm in a suit, you know, behind the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was hard to go through. But the lessons I learned at Duke allowed me to sort of uh, push through those 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 uh, struggles. Yeah. So let's. Uh, <clears throat> I love professionals. He like know he knows where the conversations going. <laughs> um, so like draft night, right? You see these. You see they ha- they do a lot of doc. What's what's it like on draft night? Um, I mean, you are a lottery pick, um, but. Th- you went. You end up going to Orlando Magic. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Like, was there a team you were hoping? Like, I'm sure a lot of teams were like, "Hey, JJ, we're looking at you." Yeah. Blah blah blah. What's yeah. what's that what goes on in your mind? Like on draft night. Uh, a little backstory. <laughs> <laughs> so, about three weeks, two or three weeks before the draft, they're having the combine in Orlando, and my back had really been bothering me. It got to the point where it was like hard to stand. It was hard mm. to walk. So I get an MRI at the combine, and I've got an eight millimeter herniated disc in my back at L five S one, and it's degenerative. It's like there's the liquid's not returning, uh, and I basically got failed by most of the teams, mm. and so I needed to get an epidural. So I went back to Duke uh, on that Monday, and this is legitimately thirteen days before the draft, <laughs> and. I, uh, I I got back to my apartment. I was I was renting a one bedroom apartment near campus, and uh, there were like three people in my apartment who were living there. And so I'm like, man, fuck! I was pissed. <laughs> What's this back injury going to do to my draft status? Mm-hmm. I got to get an epidural tomorrow. There's people in my apartment. I just want to be left alone. So I just like called a friend. I was like, what are you guys doing? Oh, so and so's having a birthday. So <laughs> I go I go and I play a little beer pong, and I <laughs> I um <laughs> I. Uh, I decide I'm going to drive my buddies to a bar and then head home. And I turn out of the parking lot uh, of the apartment complex, and there's a there's a checkpoint within Oof. 100 yards. I right. turn right back around behind the wheel <laughs> all of 22 seconds. I park the car, and within uh, two seconds of me stepping out of the car, there's They're six police on. officers with their guns drawn. Uh, they throw me to the ground. And I, anyways, I, I did a stupid thing. Very, very good lesson to learn at that age. Did a stupid thing. Nobody got hurt. I got a DUI. So on top of the back injury, I've got a DUI two weeks before the draft. <laughs> so prior to those two days, yeah, I had I had preferences of where I wanted to go. <laughs> but when you're sitting in a jail cell at 4 a.m., 13 days before the draft, all you're thinking to yourself is, like, am I going to Europe? Am I going to be a second-round pick? Like, what the fuck is going to happen? So it was more a sense of relief. Yeah, I didn't gotcha. care. It was like 11th pick, Orlando Magic, fucking tremendous. <laughs> yes. Great. Glad to have that over with. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's for sure, right? <laughs> 
By the way, the wine is just opened up. The wine's delicious. Thank man. you. Thank it's you. Man. Really, it's, it's, it's really, great. it's really yummy. Um, you got to drop on baller bottles for 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 uh, twenty twenty. We'll do this again, and yeah. I'll bring I'll bring a proper baller baller bottle. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so then you go to the magic. You know, like I said, you're relieved, and you mentioned a little before. So like you were you you were like dressed out. You weren't even playing. You were bench. Here's here you're the all time leading scorer in Duke history. At that point, you were still leading scorer in ACC, and boom. Yeah. How do you handle that? I was uh, I was ashamed and embarrassed, mm. and I felt like a failure. And there were times I lived uh, in Windermere, not on the lake, but I lived in the in Windermere. There's a, there's a chain of lakes, and once you cross over this one road, you're in Windermere, <laughs> and there's like this little boat ramp <laughs> right by one of the lakes. I remember driving home after one game, and be like, I want to drive my car into this fucking lake. Like mm. that's how mad I. I just I was so angry and and frustrated, and some of it I think to an extent was the back injury. I missed the preseason. Uh, and then my my second year, uh, I had I broke my hand. I've literally broken my hand seven times, Jeez, and, and uh, all playing basketball. And I had broken my hand in the summer after summer league, and so I missed all preseason again with a new coach. So again, I'm starting a season behind the eight ball. I didn't play, and in about three quarters of the way through that second year, I, I had this epiphany, and the epiphany was, we're going to win fifty some games. We're going to be a top three seed in the East. Um, I don't play at all. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not someone else. Maybe it's me. Maybe mm. I need to actually be better. And, mm. and, and instead of like playing the victim card a little bit, I'm yeah. getting screwed by this coach yeah. or whatever. It was like, uh, let me own this a little bit. Yeah. And and so that rest of the year, I just I just, it was like I'm gonna change my body. So it, was, it became about nutrition recovery. I I started lifting weights for the first time. And if you look at like my body at the end of that second year to when I came back yeah. for training camp, my third year for media day, it's like, oh, yeah, this is a different dude. Yeah, this is a different dude. And <laughs> and so some of it was that work, and then the other big turning point was professionally was was that playoff run we made at the end of my third year, which was when we made the finals with Orlando. And again, another season where I'm like in and out of the lineup, but I had enough games where I was starting to gain a little bit of confidence and, and have some footing, and. In game five of the first round against Philadelphia, Dwight Howard broke Courtney Lee's face, our starting two guard. He literally elbowed him and broke his face. So Stan comes to me and he says, you're going to start game six. Game six on the road in Philly. Closeout game. And uh, I hit five threes. We win the game. Then I, I, I we're playing the Celtics. And I've got to guard Ray Allen, Ray the defending up. champs. I've got to guard the GOAT, Ray Allen. And I chased his ass around for seven games. <laughs> And and played great and um, and then we make the finals and I, I played some of the finals guarded Kobe made some shots and it was really after that I said oh I, I actually I belong mm -hmm. and and that was that was the building block and I tell young players this all the time like you know your 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 role in that first year second year third year, like your role is going to evolve over time like if you put in the work and if you're a good dude and that's a lot of it. And and you learn the nuances of the NBA game. That role is going to increase. If you had asked me, geez, second year, third year, would I ever start and average eighteen a game in a season? No, never would have thought that. Mm. So, you know, you have to you have to have a foundation. That third year was really the foundation. Damn, I realize you. I think you average more. I averaged more in my thirties than I did yeah, in my twenties, yeah. which is crazy. But, but even more than Leitner did in his NBA career, man. That's like you know. Yeah. Like, but I mean, that's still. So, I mean, 
it's just a whole different level of, of yeah. I, the other thing too is I remember going to Orlando and being like, "Oh, this guy only averages nine. I'm better than him." Yeah, no, that's a whole and then different level. And you play against him in practice, you're like, "Oh shit!" Exactly. I, like to average double figures in the NBA, like, that's an accomplishment, right? Yeah, that's it, an accomplishment, right? Like, yeah. like, like it's 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 so funny to like when you when you you've lived it, but like to be able to like. To delineate, like, no, 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 listen, um, yeah, like, here's a dude who averaged 20 a game in college, and now he averages nine. Like, yeah. that, that's, it, you know, that that's, says something for the level of competition. So then, um, where'd you go after the Magic, man? I had a brief, a brief sojourn in uh, Milwaukee. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> sojourn. It was, uh, so I got... It, my they fired Stan and traded Dwight after my sixth year. Okay. Um, and going in that seventh year, I had a non guaranteed deal. So free agency, it was like up till July tenth. Free agency had started on July first. So there was like I, I thought I might get traded, and because I knew they were going to rebuild and get draft picks and young players, um, they ended up keeping me. And Jacques Vaughn was really the first coach. He was our coach. He was a rookie coach. I think he was the fourth assistant the previous year mm. in San Antonio. And they bring him in, and he met with me in the preseason. He said, "Look, you know, you're good enough to start on this team, but we want you to be our Manu Ginobili." And I was like, "Great, because that <laughs> means when I go in the game, I'm getting the ball." It, and, it shoot. and all of a sudden, it was like, "Oh, that's who I can be as an NBA player." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and and so Jacques, for me, was like the 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 catalyst for the second half of my career. He gave me freedom. He understood my strengths. And, um, and then, and then that summer I was a free agent and I, um, it was crazy, the cra crazy free agency, but the, 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 the brief account of it is basically, I get a call the day free agency starts from, uh, or my wife did from Doc Rivers wife. And she was like, Hey, uh, Chelsea, my, my wife taught Pilates, she had taught Chris, uh, Pilates. She's like, Hey, Chelsea, can I pass along JJ's number to Doc? He's going to call him tonight when free agency starts. She's like, sure. So he calls me. I meet with Minnesota the next day. I meet with Detroit the next day. L.A. and 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 Doc, of course. But L.A. decides like we we're we don't have the money for you. Minnesota makes a good offer. I commit to Minnesota. I'm driving back to my hotel. My agent calls me and says, uh, "There's a chance they're going to trade Bledsoe, get off salary to Phoenix. Milwaukee would be involved to be a sign and trade." hang tight and i'm like well what are you telling minnesota he's like i don't know we're just buying time at this point so flip saunders uh rest in peace great human mm. being but flip flip is like freaking out so it's like 2 p.m now and he's like he's like i'm taking the deal off the board within like five minutes kevin martin signed my deal with minnesota mm. so now i'm like it's three days into free agency i'm like there's no money left in the free agency <laughs> market uh what's gonna happen and the Clippers ended up making the trade that that afternoon about three thirty. Right as we're sort of getting on the plane to fly back to Austin, where we were living in the off season at the time, I'm happy. I mean, I'm going to L.A. I never thought this. Was I'm going to play with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. Yeah. We got a championship contender. I'm going to play for Doc. I've wanted to play for Doc for so long. Oh, this is going to be great. So I think all is well. So we were hosting some people in Austin for July Fourth, and the night of July Fourth, we're getting ready to go see fireworks. It's probably like seven thirty. I'm in my closet putting some clothes on and my phone rings and it's Doc. And he's like, if, I don't know why he said it this way, but he's, he's like, you better play for me, motherfucker. <laughs> and I I have no idea what's going on. And I'm just, I'm like, Doc, that's the plan. I, I thought I thought the deal was done. That's the plan. And he's talking in these vague generalities about 
this deal falling through. I have no clue what's going on. I 48 hours go by. My agent will not call me back. Again, maybe not a great choice on his part. But basically what had happened is Donald Sterling had woken up July 4th in Malibu and decided that he didn't want to pay a white guy. Well, he just of it. He didn't he, want to pay a white guy. He don't like black dudes either, so that's very interesting. <laughs> it's very interesting. He says, I don't, I don't want to pay a white guy. So he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the deal back. We're not trading blood, so deal's off. And my agent kept me out of it. Uh, Doc obviously went to bat for me, and he told Do- he, he's told the story before, but he told Donald Sterling, he's like, I'm quitting. He had just gotten the job wow. 10 days ago. He goes, I am quitting this is the worst look for our franchise. You brought me here to change the culture, change the franchise. I am quitting right now if this deal doesn't go through. And um, the deal went through. Jesus. He, he convinced Sterling to make to make the deal. And that, to me, those were the greatest four years of my career in LA. Nice. I, loved, I loved those years. Nice. You live in some cool cities, man. You lived in Austin. <laughs> hey, low key, the coolest city is New Orleans. People don't, like... There's the tourist New Orleans that we can all go to and have a good time and be on Bourbon Street and be in the French Quarter. New Orleans is special. There's so much more to New Orleans. And I didn't realize that as a visiting player. I didn't realize it till mm-hmm. I got there. Mm-hmm. It's a special place, special people, people special culture. Yeah, no. Um, one of our guests, Mary, Mary Taylor, was like our second guest. She's an importer. Um, she, she moved to New Orleans. Yeah. You know, um, I always wanted to go to New Orleans before Katrina, but I'm sure it's still super nice and and uh, probably got a it's got a crazy food and wine scene because insane, yeah, insane, yeah. And there's some there's actually some really good wine shops in New Orleans. Um, there's one in the Central Business District that I would I would go to. Um, they had like they had Mascarello, they had Fourier, they had mm. like all the best producers. Um, and then there was another shop on Magazine Street that basically specialized in in Burgundy, and uh, you could always you could always find a good bottle in New Orleans. Nice. So, when did the appreciation for wine actually start, man? <sighs> I can tell a quick story before I get into appreciation. Talk, little talk. backstory. Yeah. So my my so that's the title of this episode. A little backstory. A little backstory. Uh, I did a podcast the other day, by the way. <laughs> The title of it was logical and provocative, because <laughs> at times that's what I. That's we're getting now. We're yeah, getting yeah. all that here, man. Um, so, my my senior year in May, uh, I hosted a graduation party for myself, or my you know my family wanted to do something for me. It was not me hosting for myself, but my family was like, "Let's do a graduation party at your apartment." Very small apartment, but we got it done. Ten, twelve people. So I go to the store, and I buy some white wine and some red wine, because <laughs> at the time. I thought there was white wine and red wine, and that was it. Uh, I just thought there was different labels, to be honest with you. <laughs> I didn't know shit. Uh, I went to Napa in 2010, uh, right after we got married. But it wasn't our honeymoon, but um, my um, one of my older sisters and her husband had been on, been there on their honeymoon, loved it, and were convinced us to go. And it was like an eye-opening thing, but it, it was a very touristy thing. We weren't, we weren't in the know. We were just kind of driving down the Silverado Trail and turning off to the right and turning off to the left. Mm-hmm. It wasn't wasn't really in depth. Um, but then I then I started drinking Pinot. And and that was really the turning point for me. And then I started drinking red burgundy. And this is not a humble brag. This is a straight up brag. <laughs> the, the, the turning point for me was right after I signed with the Clippers. And we came up to New York. My wife's twin sister was 
is lives up here and we come up to visit with her, celebrate with her and her husband. And we went to 11 Madison Park and we ordered a nice bottle of champagne. I looked at the burgundy list. I said, I'll have the 90 Bouchard uh, La Romanée. We drank that. And then I said to the Psalm, I said, what's the best bottle of burgundy you have? And he said, we have one bottle left of 1978 Latash. And that was, that was my hook. He said, he said, run the jewels. <laughs> I said, let's do it. And it was, I mean, still to this day, it's one, I, there's certainly bottles of wine that you can remember. And I've had bottles of wine that were $25. Of course. That you remember of that course. are so vivid in your yep. memory. And, uh, and there's some, like, obviously some of the pet nat stuff is like amazing too. And those bottles like always stick out to me because mm -hmm. they're such distinct flavors. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was the wine that was like, I'm hooked. And and then I dabbled. Okay. I got introduced to a great uh a great wine dealer in here in New York City through a mutual friend named Jeff Goldstern. What Jeff did besides provide me access to great bottles of wine was he he's educated me. Mm -hmm. And he's taken me to wine dinners. I've met with producers and winemakers. Um you know, this bottle itself like when he sent me the offer, there's a description of it. We talked about it. You know, we talked about the value of this wine. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not enough Malconsor that Druhin has to to make a a full allocation of it. So they blend it. Had this, you know, if this was a Druhin Von Romanet Malconsor, this is a $500 bottle. Yeah. It's not. Right. So this is an incredible bottle of wine. It's yep. super young. It's going to be even more amazing in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But this is an incredible value. Yeah. And so, so it's, it's, it's obviously you, you, there's the bottle of bottles right. that we take out every right. now and then, right. but it's, it's finding those, those niche values that are really fun. No, I, I don't have, I don't have MDA money. <laughs> so I, I specialize in following the, finding the niche bottles, yeah, yeah. Well, but, 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 I, it's, but that's the fun of it. Totally. The fun, the fun is in the education and the learning. Yep. It's a rabbit hole that never ends. Exactly. That's yeah. what I think. Cause I got out of law school. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I was like, what the fuck did I do that for? Yeah. And, and, um, you know. If if you are like you can't know it all, I've had master master MWs on this show, and 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 one of them said she said she said literally she's like I can never know everything about wine because vintage to vintage the same wine is different, yeah. right? So so there's that and the vintages change over time. What is a great vintage at release? In exactly. Ten years is like eh. Right. Fifteen years is like oh. Right. Twenty years is like eh. Right. You know it's just. It, the beautiful thing about wine is the evolution, not just of the bottle itself. Obviously, it's a living, breathing thing. So there's the evolution of the bottle, the wine, the taste, the smell, all that stuff. Um, but it's the evolution of, of technology and, and how we grow and uh, farming practices, going to biodynamic. Um, look, the evolution in our lifetime will be how vintners deal with climate change. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. going to be a, a huge thing. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, and they're, they're doing that. Like uh, Bordeaux has an, introduced new varietals, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, so like you said, you were dabbling. So it was, it was your friend Jeffrey who said he, yeah. he, he kind of was at the impetus to actually start a collection. Yeah. So uh, no intention to start a collection. Okay. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> no intention. Uh, if I had, I known how expensive this rabbit hole was, I probably would have, uh, once you get the taste on your lips though, it's, it's, it's hard to stop. It's, it's hard to so stop. True. But no, what happened was I, I finished my first year in Philly. This was 18. So okay. it was about three and a half years ago. And yeah, this is May of 18, three and a half years ago. And I... My friend, uh, 
who I knew was a collector and is one of uh, he's legitimately one of the b- biggest collectors in the world. But I was like, dude, where do you get your wine? You know, I, and I was like, I'm looking for. It was sp- very specific. I'm like, I'm looking for a 99 Latosh and a 90 Latosh. That's I. I just want one bottle of each. They were going to be celebratory for one for my career year and my wife's birthday, which was that week mm-hmm. or the next week, and then the other one was going to be in anticipation of free agency. I was going to open it when I signed my new contract. So that was, that was it. And he said, look, I, I, I can get those bottles, no problem. Gave me good prices. And he said, um, if you don't mind, can I can I send you some stuff? Let me know what you like. And so he has sort of helped me develop my palate and mm-hmm. my understanding of why do I like Northern Rhone and not like Bordeaux? <laughs> you know what I'm, I mean? I'm, I, I will take a, a, yeah. a Northern Rhone over most Bordeaux every day. Every day. I, that's just, I'm a Rhone guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, you know what, let's, we're going to, we got to take a break. We're just, we're just going and going. Let me take a quick break and then we'll come back with more JJ. Hey everybody. What's up? It's your boy MJ. I know you like podcasts because you're listening to one right now. If you want another one to check out, you will love where the wine takes you. It's Apostle Robles wine podcast hosted by Adam Montiel. And this podcast is all about the wines, winemakers, and stories of Apostle Robles. It's available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to it on their website, PasoWine.com, P-A-S-O-Wine.com. Hey, hey, what's up? It's your boy MJ again. Fun fact for you. Did you know that the ideal temperature to store wine is 56 degrees? Well, Joe Bembry and the crew at 56 Wine not only know that, they also had the audacity to name their store 56 Degree Wine. They even kept the thermostat set at 56 degrees until a few customers complained that it was a bit chilly. Listen, if you're looking for a great selection of carefully curated wines of perfect provenance, you need to go check them out. That's 56degreewine.com. You can use the code MJ at checkout and receive 15% off your first order. Okay, we're back. Um, So... Yeah, you were talking about once you get the taste on your lips. <laughs> and I'm just going to buy one bottle of night at a time. Just one. Just one. Um, so, um, so you were, you know, you you were just, you were still in the league for for the bubble year. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, we read during, you know, during your preparation for the bubble, you're, you're back in Orlando. You weren't, you're unhappy with the hotel's wine selection. So uh, <laughs> how did you, how did you fix that? <laughs> Well, look, <laughs> I didn't know what the bubble was going to be like. And ha- had I known that um, it was basically going to be a uh, sleepaway camp for adults, I probably <laughs> I probably would have brought my own provisions. Um, but I get there and I'm like, man, there's a lot of fucking downtime, you know, um, you can't you can't really practice once games start because of gym allocation time because everybody's playing now all day long. It's not like it's, you know, a seven o'clock game and a nine o'clock game. Everybody's got games all day long. So you're not practicing on off days. Um, and you're with your buddies, <laughs> you know, you're with your buddies. And so I realized after about five or six days, uh, and I was, I spent literally from the pandemic to when I got to the bubble, it was the best shape of my life. Like I, I, I overworked myself. I was, it was the only outlet during the pandemic for me was like, I got to escape the house. We're quarantined. I found a private gym. I would go an hour and a half a day and just run 
and and shoot hoops. And I I was I was in great shape. So I'm thinking to myself like, all right, I'm gonna spoil myself a little bit. I'll get some wine down here. So I bought a wine fridge on Amazon. It was like a 16 bottle. And I called Jeff and I said, I need you to remedy a problem. <laughs> I need you to help with this situation I'm having right now. Um, so he sent down uh, some some Whitebergs and uh, a bunch of Punceau. I, I love Punceau. <laughs> and so he sent down like, not anything crazy. Maybe it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's crazy. Now that I think about it, it's all relative, but it's crazy. Uh, but yeah. he, he sent down some like, I think some 09, 06, 04, 02, uh, Griot Chamberton, some Claude de la Roche. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. No, it's it was good yeah, stuff. It's kinda and crazy. so then I'm like, we're we're you know we're NBA players, so you get wind of a guy on another team having a great bottle, and now it's a competition. Yeah, man. Now it's a competition. So those nights after games where you've got like five or six teams, everybody's decompressing. We've all played that day. There's nowhere to go. We can't hang with our families. Our kids are asleep. There's no FaceTiming our kids. It's 1030. It's like, let's go meet in the player's lounge, bring a great bottle. And I had some amazing fucking conversations in the bubble with different people. And I caught up with old teammates. I caught up with, I caught up with people like Carmelo, you know, we were the same high school class. We knew each other in high school. Mm-hmm. We've known each other, but like, we actually like stayed up till two one night having a three hour conversation. Yeah, over a bottle of wine. Yep, it was beautiful. Um, so everybody kind of was doing it. I, you know, I I think you're referencing the Baxter Holmes article from ESPN. He wrote a great article on the bubble and the wine consumption. Yeah. Um, but it was. It was interesting. He, he drinks some good shit. He does. He does. Yeah. He's got access to some great I, stuff. He does, man. Yeah, like, <laughs> He's got access to great I, stuff. I on his Instagram, I'm like, God damn. It's like, it was a good night. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know? Um, and that's, and what's so cool, like, like, the, like, okay, so we're talking about wine, but the, the whole idea behind this podcast is like people sharing a bottle of wine, the conversation you yeah. have over a bottle of wine. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, so... Yeah, and that's. Let me so- ask you. I, you've talked. I'm sure you've mentioned this before. I'm sure somebody's asked you this before. But the the love for wine, like at its core, what do you think it is for you? It hits all. It checks all the boxes, man. It it, it stimulates you um, mentally. It's a. I think it's a mental stimulation. Like it's like it's like I liked history and shit. Like and I went to law school, so I like analyze. And and lost. It's called distinguishing cases. So in a wine, you're distinguishing flavors, you're distinguishing terroir, yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Um, it's it's you you hit on it like the wine is evolving like a bottle of wine is history like you 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 open a bottle and you're like oh shit so like what happened in 2019 you know um what uh you know i had that uh a 68 heights with kevin's Israeli brought i was born in 68 like i'm like damn okay maybe i'm not that old this wine is in pretty good shape you know um and and it's the stories it's the stories and how this beverage brings people together but it just it just hits all the boxes right you know it, it's sight first what do you do first you do you check the color right and then you sniff it right and then you know and then you taste it and then you taste it and you and like you know we're not doing the you know tasting that but but i'm sure we we all do that from time to time right and then and then it's like you know, we were we were like forty five. I was like, I was like, oh, I took away. I'm like, fuck, this wine is changing. Yeah. It's it's that. It, it it's 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 
there's no there's no other beverage like it, yeah. man. You know, it's the sensory experience. It's, it's and, a complete and, sensory uh, experience. Yeah, along with. I, I think if you're a learner, if you're if you're naturally yeah, just yep. interested curious. and curious, um, there's an attraction to that. For me, the, the the collection part is interesting because I've I've always collected, even as a kid. You know, I would collect GI Joes. Right. I would collect right. baseball cards, yeah. basketball cards, um, and and the original collection for me as an NBA player was watches, and I got really into it. And again, that's. A whole nother rabbit listen, hole. I know. Listen, I I see. I'm a well. I love watches. I don't yeah. have watch, but that's I. You know, I have. I, I don't I have, even wear a watch yeah, anymore. I have I don't like even wear a watch. I have like. I sold my entire collection. Wow. Because I realized it was a very, I don't want to say selfish, <laughs> but it was a very individualistic pursuit. Yeah. There was no one other than another collector who could look at a watch right. or feel a watch, but there was no one in my orbit. Right. That I could share it with, right. that I could share an experience with. And I didn't say like, oh, wine does that. I realized a year, a year and a half into it, oh, wine does that. You know, this was 17, I sold my collection. So 18, I start collecting. And then I'm like, oh, now I like it's it's part of like a love language almost, where mm. I'm we're having a we're having a dinner. I'm the guy that brings a couple of bottles. Exactly, you know? right, exactly. I'm hosting I hosted my family for Thanksgiving. <laughs> And like I had every night, like pizza this, we're doing pizza this night, Thanksgiving dinner this night. We got a chef coming for my sister's birthday this night. Like I'm like in my cellar, like this is, exactly. this, is this is going here. And it, I just, I loved it. Yeah. I loved every minute of that. And so getting to share that with someone and experience a conversation, a bottle, um, that to me is the juice for me. That's the juice of wine. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, shit, I, I, you know. You wouldn't have come on this podcast if I didn't drink wine. So that's here you go. It's true. It's true. I say a lot. I say no to a lot of podcasts. I, I, I no would imagine. No, I would imagine, man. Um, all right. So um, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, you've been an advocate and demand the NBA address its uh, racial inequality. Um, you know, during the bubble, we saw like, um, you know, uh, Players were were making statements on in their warm up, you know, and on their jerseys, um, but um, you know, this is not me. This is people. People have gone to call the NFL. Well, I have before. NFL NFL is bad to me, man. NFL is definitely different owners than NFL. Man. Yeah. Not not that they're all great in NBA as we're. You know, you worked for someone who didn't want to pay a white boy. Yeah, you, well, you got the Phoenix Suns guy. He also was on tape saying, "I don't want black people, people in my game." Exactly. Most of his players are we're black. black. I know. And yeah. Most of the players' families were black. black. It's yeah, yeah. It's still the most yeah. craziest thing that's ever. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, like you've been vocal about that. Like, and I've always said it's like, what, like. What makes you, I mean, like, you're good to go. Like you said, you got, the. Hey, listen, everybody respects each other, you know, in the NBA and, you know, but like, what what was it about you or the way you were brought up that made you um, join, the, join the conversation? Um, it's, it's an interesting topic to talk about. Um, and certainly, if we look at it in the context of... Uh, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, um, and so many other people that that we've seen over the last three years, which all sort of came to a head last May. If we look at it in that context, 
um, I think if you're a human being, mm. if you're a human being that has any sort of empathy and care, uh, and I'm speaking just like generally, like you really, it was just a natural thing mm-hmm. to to speak out, support, ask how can I help. Um, that it was just a natural thing for anybody, I think. Um, for me, <laughs> I've just I've observed things, okay, and I've seen um, and heard how people talk about athletes and i've i've always been in tune with that and and people's perception of my colleagues Mm -hmm. uh who the majority are black Mm -hmm. and it's never sat well with me and i've also observed uh inequalities in our our education educational system Mm -hmm. that was the first thing that when chelsea and i got married that we um, we tried to start addressing, you know, where where can we like where can we help if we're gonna if we're gonna if we're gonna give resources and time to something like where can we help? Well, let's start there. Um, so I've always just I've always just had like an awareness about this, mm-hmm. and again, if there's opportunities to help, to speak out, to advocate, I'm very comfortable doing that. There is a fine line. I want to be very clear on this, and I'm not saying that I'm, I've always been perfect with this, but there is a fine line of uh, like a performative uh, theater in in being an advocate for social justice. <clears throat> no, I, I get into arguments with my producer all the time about that. I'm yeah, like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, they've crossed the line. <laughs> um, I, I I would agree with that. There is yeah. a line. Yeah, and and so. And so I, I think I think you. It's not even just like picking and choosing your spots. It's just like. If you if and you should be compelled, you know most of the time. But like there there are times where hey maybe I should just listen to this conversation. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be the guy at the front. Maybe yep. it's maybe right. it's having a follow up conversation with a specific individual. Maybe that's that's the helpful play here. So I, I think it's just like finding that awareness. The other part of this, and and I've talked about this before. That's I think difficult for for any athlete right now, and and wh- whether you're white, black, whatever. It, there's there's almost an obligation to speak out on anything, and I'm sure you followed this um, this Ennis Cantor Freedom uh, issue where he's calling out different people for doing business with China and and acknowledge you know you know being an advocate for for um, the Mus- the Muslim population there that's that's being abused mm-hmm. uh, and. People are now asking us about that, right? People, I remember getting asked about uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, about 18 months ago. I think it was February, March of, of uh, 2020, or maybe it was last year. Getting asked about that, um, I'm not an expert on that, right? Exactly, right? I, 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 I like I, I can educate myself. I can. I only have so much bandwidth, mm-hmm. and and I I would just say this: like I know what's going on in America. I, I I know what's going on in America. I was a history major. My my uh, specialization was American history. My specialization within that was the Civil War and Reconstruction. I know what has happened in America. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I feel I feel like I can speak on that not to not with authority, but like with some coming from a place of of some sort of knowledge. I also just 
I've wit I've witnessed it. Like I said, I've observed things. So it's 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 just to me it has always just been a matter of comfort and the fact that uh I, I I'm empathetic. Yeah. I'm empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think you hit the nail right on the head with empathy and also so many good things that are like there is this fine line of you know of of knowing because <clears throat> in every movement somebody an activist emerges with like a 501c3 paying themselves 250k a year <laughs> just, just keep 100 i've worked in a nonprofit world these are, so you, you, like it's yeah. known where and there are so many conflicts and i could see being there's an a athlete. lot i would just say this there's a lot of a lot of grifters out there yeah um and, and not just for money but there's grifters for clout and and, right. and especially with the way social media exists yeah um there's there's people looking for nor- notoriety for the wrong reason yeah and 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 so that's when I said earlier, just like kind of, it's not even, I don't want to say it's balanced because look, there's fucked up things happening to black people and there has been for hundreds of years. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Right. But it's, 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 it's just saying like, what, what is, what is my role in this? Let me listen to other people. What should my role be? And mm-hmm. then like in a smart way and as best I can, I'm a flawed human being. Let me act on that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and I think you said one, it's also like you said, listen, like sometimes you got to step back and listen, you know, and chart your course. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, I, I agree with you. And and being an athlete, it, being anybody who's in the media, you know, people, there are people who are trying to trip you up to get notoriety, right? Like, like you know, like, well, like, so. Well, uh, the, the, the another example of this, like, obligation to speak on things is, you know, the, the NBA media day. When all the all the reporters are asking different, are you vaccinated? Are you vaccinated? This whole vaccination thing has become so politicized. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah. And and I was talking about this earlier with somebody today. So in 2019, um, you know, anti-vaxxers were like a fringe thing. Like they were. Pe- people were lo- like, "Who are these crazy? Who like, are these crazy people?" Yeah. Now, now it, it's because we politicize it. It's such yep. a polarizing issue yep. that. It's become mainstream, mm-hmm. and now you're asking athletes to talk about something that, like, frankly, we're not that particularly edu- educated you're on. Not I can't, I can't break down. You're, you're not fucking how, doctors. How the RNA works? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. No. You're, you're you're spot on, man. Like, it's. I remember. It's like because I lived in California, and people were like, it's like, oh, vaccines cause autism. I'm like, they do. I got vaccinated. I'm not autistic. <laughs> you know. Um. But um, yeah, it's it's tough to navigate that whole thing, man. So, you know, um, and you know, I I will say this: I don't know what it's like inside NBA, but like I saw what happened to Colin Kaepernick versus um, you know at least the commissioner of the NBA, like being you know I don't I guess he sat down and listened to the players when they went and gave him uh, uh, the freedom to express themselves. So I, I do have to applaud that, you know. And then it's just it's just funny, like looking back at like the david stern nba like when they're like nope yeah <laughs> gotta wear suits now like like they <laughs> like they, they he, he like put the kibosh on some certain things you know um the pendulum swings yeah you know and and look there there was there was a <sighs> you think about you think about the 90s nba how many fights there were and hey look you gotta get suspended for a game or two right after the malice in the palace that was like one extreme end of that pendulum. And David Stern had to figure out a way how to balance that back out, which he he swung back to the other side. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, Adam has done an incredible job of finding that balance. 
and listening to players. And and really to me, that's that's so important to have someone in the league, the head of the league office, who is emotionally and intelligently emotionally intelligent enough and intellectually intelligent enough to find the balance of of working with the owners, but also being an advocate for the players and acknowledging all the things that we have to go through. And he's he's really truly done an incredible job. When you said I'm like you know what this guy's job is? He's dealing with all these billionaires yeah. and then all these millionaires and then making them come together. Yeah. What a job. Yeah. What a job. Oh, what a job. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> now you you um, you you retired this year, early this year. Um, great career. Um, watched your retirement announcement. So it was really moving. It was like moving 18 minutes, man. What was, what was, it wasn't 18 minutes. What, what? It was like six. Yeah, was... man, I think the whole thing was like 18 minutes. Man. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, what was that like? Um, because I didn't realize like you had an injury. Like you, you have. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's it like to? Because when we were warming up, I believe you said, or somewhere in the podcast, you said, you need competition. You need to go. Yeah. You were doing this at the highest level. Um, what was it like when you when you uh, you you know how did you come to the point where it was just time to walk it was you know it was time to yeah to step away the health the health was certainly a factor i um i basically developed uh haglund's syndrome in my heel which is basically an overgrown heel bone that is calcified and it it basically pushes on the bursa sac that's in between the attachment of the achilles tendon and the heel bone which causes an inflammation in the bursa sac but what what also happened with me is uh, that insertion started to tear. So I have some tearing at the insertion of my Achilles, which I still have not gotten operated on. There's no running or jumping for me for a while. But um, so I'm dealing with that all season. And and I had been away for two months in the bubble for my family. I went down to New Orleans. I spent, you know, between New Orleans and Dallas, I spent another six and a half months uh, away from my wife and kids who my son started kindergarten in 2020. So he's in kindergarten in Brooklyn. We've got all these COVID restrictions, travel restrictions. They couldn't come to see me because then he's got to quarantine for two weeks and can't go to school. So it just became very prohibitive to even see them. So in that six and a half months, I saw them three times. And between the injury and just really just being fried, um, I, I, I knew it was time to, to walk away. The hard part was letting go. Mm. And letting go is not just you know letting go to like playing basketball and – doing something you love. Letting go is also letting go of something that is so interwoven into your identity and your ego. I, I'd say, you know, enmeshed. Yeah. It's just, it, it's part of who you are. Right. And that's a, that's a really scary proposition. Um, so look, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, but you know, I, I, uh, off and on since Duke really, I've, I've, um, I've talked to mental health professionals. And so I, I started talking to this gentleman two or three years ago, and he's helped me a bunch with, with different stuff. But, you know, we we talked um, in mid-September, and I was 99% of the way there. I knew I didn't want to play a full season, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to play half the season, get my surgery sometime in the fall, come back in February or March. And we just talked through a bunch of different stuff. And, and you know, when you start doing some time value propositions – it became so clear to me that I was ready to retire. 
And I can say, I can say, you know, three months into this, whatever it is, three and a half months, two and a half months, I've, uh, I've never been happier as an adult. And I'm so content with my decision. There hasn't been a single moment where I've regretted it or even a single moment where I said, oh, I should be playing. Um, and you look at all the things that have happened since the season ended, free agency, uh, training camp, start of the season, you know, we're quarter game, quarter into the season now. I watch basketball every single night. Not a single part of me is like, I want to go play. <laughs> you know, that to me wow. means it was time. Yeah. It was time. Yeah. And and now you get to watch it and you're drinking good wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, I could be out there or I could be here. Yeah, I mean, look, somebody's, somebody's willing to like send me a check every week to go on TV for 10 minutes and talk about <laughs> basketball. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> Great. So, yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about that, man. So you also like, um, <clears throat> ESPN. Um, So you've already, like, what's it like? So trying to remember where, you know, there was a shift at some point where there are still former players, but it just became like the pundits talking Mm -hmm. about sports, right? So like you you work with, like, I know so far you've been here a few months. You you and Stephen A. Smith seem to have a a wonderful relationship. (laughs) What's it like working with, like, uh, and a matter of fact, one time I think, oh, it was the uh, LeBron, the elbow. Yeah. And Steven's like was just telling you, like, I know, I talked to LeBron. <laughs> so I, I watched the game, and I said, Stephen A., I played the game. Um, you know, the back and forth has been that. That to me has actually been the most fun part. Okay. And Stephen A. and I uh, have a, a great relationship, and I actually think he appreciates the banter back and forth. I think he does. Yeah. Yeah. I um, remember when he was like a. A reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was a beat writer. He was a beat writer. And I liked his stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden I was like, damn, he blew up. Yeah. Shit. This guy's, I mean, he's he's built um, a an insane career. And there is a there is a an exceptional talent there. There is an exceptional talent. And I think that's what people that can't appreciate Stephen A, uh, they're 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 overlooking him. There's a there's a talent to the delivery and the energy and the discourse to a degree. I, I disagree with a, a lot of things he says, and I, I I tell him that. But there there's there's a value to the discourse, yeah. Because it's he's saying things that people all over the country are saying, right? And I'm pointing out to him, not only are you wrong. <laughs> All those other people yeah. are wrong too. All motherfuckers <laughs> never played professional basketball. <laughs> um, you don't. You know. Again, we we've we've talked a bunch about just like finding balance and different things, and and so you you don't. I, I'm cognizant of the fact that I don't want to get uh, too far into the take world. That's not where I want to live. Yeah. But I can provide what I think to be a well-informed take at times. But I like talking about basketball, and I like talking about. A lot of great stories happening in the NBA. We we talked about this on my podcast last week. Uh, you know, we highlighted the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're one of the best stories in the NBA this year. Um, SVP hit me up at about five PM last night uh, to do my Sports Center hit with him after the Warriors Blazers game, and he's like, "Hey, here's the things I'm thinking about talking about. Let me know if any of these things interest you." And one of them was the Cavs, and I said, "Scott, I would fucking love to talk about the Cavs. <laughs> Let's talk about the Cavs." Um, so there's just for me it's like how do we how do we highlight 
all the amazing players, amazing teams, and amazing storylines in the NBA and, and do it in a really thoughtful, educated way. Yeah, yeah. So, like, as a, as a, as a former player and, and like, with, with a 15-year career, you know, like, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's look at the Warriors. Like, like Steph Curry's, like, shooting the lights out like old Steph Curry. What's, like, I know you've talked about that, like, <laughs> like the one, two of him and Draymond. Like, what, what do you, what's, um, what, what, what do you see, like, we got JJ here. Where, 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 where do you, you know, at this point in the season, who, who are you looking at? Like, you know, I know it's early. Anything can happen once you, but like, who, who's looking, who's like the sleeper? Who's the favorite? And like, who's like the dark horse? Mm. Sleep. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I would say there's five teams to me right now that I would consider to be favorites that in my estimation have created a, a level of, uh, sort of separation. Uh, in the West, it's very clearly the Golden State Warriors, the Phoenix Suns, and the Utah Jazz. In the East, it's the defending champs, the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, my sleeper would be a healthy Miami team. Mm. I think they are they can be as good as anyone. They've had a bunch of health issues. Their record's not particularly superlative, but they're, they're in the playoffs, assuming they're healthy, they're going to be a tough out for anybody. The Dark Horse is the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> like, why are we, why are we, uh, you know, just sort of uh, doubting LeBron once again? Like, this is what he thrives off of. And with him in the lineup, I think they're eight and five. Um, all the indicators over their last five or six game are way up. They've got a, a much better positive rating. Defensive rating was way down, which is what they struggle with early in the year. And Russell Westbrook has been amazing the last five games. So, I think they're starting to figure it out. I still don't like their roster construction yeah. to win it all in a playoff, you know, to win four playoff series. But they're a team that, look, whether it's through the trades or through, you know, buyout season, if they add a couple uh, pieces, they're going to be right there too. They're going to be right there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shit. <clears throat> I got Russell, AD, they have three Mello. Hall of Famers. Four Hall of Famers. Yeah. Mellow. Yeah. And fucking, yeah, you can't count that squad out. No. No. Yeah. Um, so, did you know you were gonna get this gig with ESPN? Was, was it a plan to go into like you know you retire and you're like oh now what? Well, you got your podcasting company and you know you have your, your great pod. Um, I, I, I basically looked at it as I retired in September. I I'm gonna take a year off, and this was just an opportunity to. To basically, it's not even stay relevant, but stay close to the game. And I don't know next September what I'll be doing. I, I truthfully don't. Um, but with the podcast, with ESPN, you could certainly see a future uh, in, in in sports media. Um, but it, it just honestly, like, I set it up where <laughs> I record the podcast usually Monday or Tuesday night. I usually work at ESPN Tuesday or Wednesday. And then Thursday through Sunday, I can do whatever I want. Like, come on your podcast and drink wine. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, man. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It gives me enough to do. I don't, I'm not the type of person that, if you said, like, because I, when I signed with ESPN, I had a bunch of friends reach out and be like, what is wrong with you? I thought you were going to retire. Gonna take <laughs> and I, look, I cannot sit still for a year. Yeah. There's been a few days recently where it's Thursday or Friday, 
and I've taken care of everything I need to take care of. My kids are in school, and I'm I'm literally sitting on my couch twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. Literally, I used it. God damn it. Yeah. No, you know they, they 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 know, man. Like 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 I'm like okay, so we're wrapping up. We'll be wrapping up season three, and I'm like, shit. I don't know if I could take three weeks off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm like. You know what momentum matters, though. Yeah. Momentum matters in life. I agree. And I'm. It, there's. It's. It's a. Uh, this is like a. I. I did not do particularly well in physics. I'm not going to lie. But this has to do with sort of inertia. Is it inertia? Inertia, yeah. Inertia, yeah. Yeah. Uh, objects in motion. Uh, objects in motion tend to stay in motion, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like, um, you know, it's 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 it. I I feel you, and like, like I I I, I feel like I go crazy sometimes. Like, literally, I'm like, ah, you know, I'm like, someone so's in town. I'm gonna do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> And Lai's like, I'm on vacation. I'm like, all right, I'll do it myself. <laughs> the thing I like about a podcast is there's always, well, not always, but there's, um, as the host, there's a there's a performance component to it because you're you're creating something. Yeah. You're 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 making a product. You're making content, and especially if it's a good episode and. That's a very subjective thing, obviously. But, no, I, but feel, I know I know what you mean when you yeah, say that. Yeah. You, 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 you stop recording, guest leaves, close up shop, and you're like, there's a feeling you get when you've made good content mm-hmm. that also is that is a little it's a little druggy. There's a there's a there's an adrenaline kick there that's it's really nice. It's nice. Yeah. So what what so I used to do a podcast with uh, Yahoo Sports, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, I obviously enjoyed it, but what was really, what was the thought between, uh, behind, is it uh, 342? 342, yeah. 342, okay. Um, so we we did, uh, I did 40 episodes with Yahoo. I did a bunch of episodes by myself with The Ringer and then Tommy Alter, um, who was working for Bill when I met him in 2016. I just was like, yo, we've done a couple of mailbag episodes together. Let's, why don't we do a, you as the co-host and just make my life a little easier. Uh, and then we did whatever, 10 episodes and then the pandemic started and we went to quarantine and all of a sudden, although the product had existed for a long time, we discovered Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that was so And funny. we're like, wait, we can record remotely? <laughs> This is amazing. So that whole spring, we started putting stuff out, and then, and then uh, George Floyd was murdered, yeah. and that was uh, a big turning point for both of us because we realized, like, I want, I just want, if I'm going to have this thing, like, I want to be able to do whatever the fuck I want to do and talk about whatever the fuck right. I want to talk about, right. and. So we we decided we were just gonna like shop the thing and um, you know because we'd had a proof of concept we got a, a few offers uh, just to, basically from ad sales partners but we were gonna start our own company we're gonna own the thing like I've, I did a hundred episodes I didn't own the IP I didn't own the RSS feed the Ringer used our RSS feed used our subscription mo- you know base to to put a new podcast they put a new NBA podcast on there with two different guys Fuck. they're both nice guys but like I'm like. Come on, man! Like yeah. we did that. You built that. I built that. You yeah, built that and um, and we launched in the middle of the bubble. The timing was great because 
there was nothing, no real content coming out of the bubble. Right. And uh, people, people immediately started, you know, like really uh, attaching themselves to it. And we have a, a great listener base. Our, um, we also own our YouTube channel, which that has been to me. That's like the, been the most fun is like seeing that community grow. I, I didn't really spend a ton of time on YouTube before we started that channel, and now I'm addicted to YouTube. Not I'm, I'm not on my channel. I'm, I'm like I'm a golf nerd, so I I just I only subscribe to golf channels, and I go down these two hour rabbit holes oh of watching uh, drone videos of golf courses. <laughs> YouTube is the worst. It's uh, the best in the worst. Like yeah. next for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you're look, if you're gonna to, it, I, I, people ask me all the time, like, what does it take to be, do a podcast? Like, the, the number one thing is just consistency. Right. Like, there has to be a desire to actually do a podcast consistently. And if you don't have that desire, you shouldn't really start. Because there's there's days where I got to record and I'm like, ah, I don't really want to do this today. But you do it. Yep. And then there's a lot of days where you're like, I can't wait to have this guest on. This would be right. an awesome conversation. Right. And and those days are good too. But um, you just got to be consistent with it. There's really no other way to do do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> are you – like you own the IP. Are you going for you, – you planning on growing out your network? Are you going to host other podcasts, produce other – like what, what's, uh, what, what's your thought on this? I think this is this is the start of – basically our creative year. Okay. Which is how do we make other content? The the model of right now for the size of our company, we have four employees. The, the model for the size of our company to go start other podcasts is so much work for next to nothing in terms of money. There's just no way for us to True that. No, this, <laughs> there's just no way to to really to make money off of it that way right. when we're essentially the middleman because yeah. the talent's going to get paid a certain amount and the company selling the ads are going to be paid a certain amount. So the decision we have to make is like, do you know, do we go in-house? The problem with that is Cadence, who is our partner, has been an incredible partner for us. Um, they've, been, they've been just wonderful to work with. And, you know, I, I would love to continue to work with them. So then it becomes, well, what other content can we create? How do we build out our YouTube channel? We, we have... Uh, we have a couple sh uh, TV shows, essentially, that we are working on. Uh, one we are going to start filming uh, in January. Uh, that will live originally on our our YouTube channel, but it's 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 comedic. I'm not the host. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to, to watch it. Uh, and then and then we're working on a uh, another show that we have begun to pitch to different uh, high level production companies and uh and streaming platforms so uh that's kind of where we're at with year one and 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 then but look the, the the base of it is like how do you how do you make your product better how do you grow your product yeah how do you grow your audience how do you grow your business and we actually have like a legitimate business with old man and the three and yeah. you know we're always kind of thinking of ways to to grow that that's got to be the driving force for anything we do yeah so <clears throat> um you're you you are someone who could probably live anywhere in the world they want to live, <laughs> you know. I mean, directly anyone can do that, you, you know. But like, you could live anywhere in the world and enjoy it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, what what had you moved to New York City? So, my mother, uh, as I mentioned, I think she worked 
at the first all-female co-op on Wooster Street, AIR, Artists in Residence, um, mm. right after college. Oddly enough, Artists in Residence is now uh, across the street from my apartment in Dumbo. How about that for a small world? Um, I also found out after the fact, my mother, her, the, the Anne Healy was uh, her sort of uh, teacher um, at AIR. My mother was her apprentice. Anne Healy took a sabbatical for, for half a school year, and my mother taught her sculpting class at my kid's school. In, the, in like 1976. It's just, it's crazy. So anyways, when I was a kid, my mom, come up here for AAU tournaments or whatever, my mom would take me on the subway. We'd go to Soho. Um, you know, we'd go to Midtown, of course. Um, but we'd explore all these different neighborhoods. And I just loved it. And I always said to myself, as a teenager, I'm, I'm going to live in New York City someday. I ended up marrying a woman who has an identical twin sister. And that <laughs> twin booked, in 2012, booked a one-way flight uh, with no job and no friends and no place to stay to New York City. She happened to know of a guy uh, and she asked him, can I crash on your couch for a month? She, at the time, she was, I think, going to be a yoga instructor. <laughs> she crashed on the guy's couch. She got her yoga certification. That lasted like two weeks. She ended up working in, in PR for uh, a number of years. She's now married to that man with, they have two kids. <laughs> when we started having kids, we... Uh, we just we just miss being on the East Coast, mm. and we 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 miss being around her. And uh, I've developed a great friendship with uh, my brother-in-law as well. I mean, they're the reason we're here. I mean, I, I I could have stayed in Austin. We we thought about living in Manhattan Beach in mm. in LA, where where we rented for four years while I played there. Again, great options. Uh, there's a lot of places around the country that I could. I can have a good life there. Yeah. There's nothing like New York City. There's nothing like New York City. And now that I have children. Um, I want to raise my kids here. Um, I, I I think about the kids that I met at Duke and the little bubble that I lived in growing up, how small that bubble would be if I hadn't played basketball. Mm. Basketball is what exposed me to the world. But in New York City, you're just you're just exposed. And those kids at at Duke, when I first got there, were so far ahead of me in all walks of life. Um, they just, they knew more, they were more confident. Um, they were, they, they were more cultured and, and, and so, yeah, I just, I love the energy here. I love the food. I love, uh, Broadway. I, I, I love museums. Like I love central, my wife and I went for a walk in central, we don't even live in Brooklyn. I mean, we, we don't even live in Manhattan. We went for a walk in central <laughs> park the other day. It was 38 degrees. It was so enjoyable. Like I just love living here and, um, and it's, it's where I want to raise my family. Which is crazy to some people. It's crazy. <clears throat> but for all the reasons you said, it's so true. Like, I remember I grew up in Jersey. It would come in the city. But, like, you go off to college and you meet kids who grew up in New York City. They're just at a different level. They're just at a different level, culturally sophisticated, just um, – uh, the street smarts of a kid. Like, I'm like, what you used to, you used to take the subway to school? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. like, like yeah. talking about in the '80s in New York, kids, '80s, you know. And so, but I just, it just is a, you know, I, I think that's great that you, you, you're, you're, you're doing it for all the right reasons. You're, 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 you're I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it this way: like, we all we're human beings and we're tribal. Okay, let's just establish that. And so, whether we like it or not, we, we. We put ourselves in these silos, and maybe the doors to the silos are open, maybe they're closed shut. 
but you're in a silo no matter what. You're in your little bubble mm-hmm. of, of whatever. It, you have kids and like your your friends end up being the parents of your kids' friends. Like that's just how it works. But <laughs> the the bubble that is New York City, <laughs> there's just nothing like it. There's just nothing like it. I could never imagine at this stage of my life <laughs> going and living in suburbia in a cul-de-sac like i just can't like it's not for me it's not for me not for me jj shit man thank you so much for uh coming in this afternoon man we really appreciate your time and the conversation was off the chain uh the bottle absolutely delicious um y'all heard me say we gotta do this again so we'll figure that out Um, we'll make it happen yeah make it happen and uh here's the my only request is this is my only request i'm gonna come on the show again okay i'm gonna bring not that this wasn't a great bottle but i'm gonna bring i'm gonna bring a great bottle and my only request is that you wait to release your top wines of the year on the podcast until after i come on the show my only request okay it's a deal You got a deal. All right, everybody. It's your boy, MJ. Until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks. He played for the Mavericks. Uh, philosophers, deep thinker. You are all of those, and you're definitely a wine drinker. Everybody, peace. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. 